Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer. And today on the podcast, we have another presidential candidate. Julian Castro returns to the podcast and he talks about how he is thinking about getting out of the race. What would make him get out of the race? He also talks about how impeachment, the impeachment of President Trump, will reshape the presidential race. And he also talks about his visit to a homeless camp in Oakland when he was here in the Bay Area this week and how it's like nothing he's ever seen. And this is the guy who used to be the Secretary of Housing, and he's seen it all. Julian Castro next on It's All Political. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Secretary Castro, welcome back to It's All Political. This is, I believe, your third appearance on It's All Political. You're, glad to be back, yeah, you're, Joe. You're, you're tied with Adam Schiff. I'm becoming Schiff. a regular You're now. regular. We were almost like a co-host. <laughs> How did that point. happen? I'm I, from Texas. Yeah, At I least know. Adam is around here in California. <laughs> um, we're sitting in the, uh, we're doing this in, in San Francisco in the, um, in a, like a hallway in the, in the Marker Hotel. We're here in downtown San Francisco. You've been in California for a West Coast swing. Um, Let's talk about impeachment. Let's talk about that because it's on everyone's mind. You were OG on impeachment. You were for impeachment, I think, the first, if not one of the first. That's right. Yeah. Just right after the Mueller report came out and it listed those 10 different instances of obstruction of justice. Okay. So, but as we speak today, half of independent voters don't think there should be an independent or, or should be an impeachment inquiry. Another poll I saw the other day said 44% of Americans have no idea what the hell Ukraine is all about. You want to be president, you want to be a communicator, you need to, how do you sell the need for impeachment in a very simple, concise way, like a sentence or two? Your bumper sticker pitch on impeachment, what would it be? Uh, It would be uh, Trump abused his power to go after a political opponent. And he did that by dangling military aid to the Ukraine and asking for a favor. If they did his political dirty work against Joe Biden, he would give him military aid. If not, the implication was that he wouldn't. So this is a classic abuse of power scenario. And uh, what we heard today was also there's a cover-up. So there's there's a crime and there's a cover-up here. Uh, And I believe that more and more people are going to come to see that not only should there be an impeachment inquiry, but the president should be impeached because of how flagrantly he's abused his power. Uh, What the Trump administration can't hide anymore uh, are the facts. And as the facts come out, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. I think we've already seen that in the last 48 hours. What does the the existence, allegedly, from the whistleblower's point of view, of a 
sort of a secret repository for um, conversations that the president's had. What does that ramp things up? Does that does that add intrigue? What does it, what does that do? I mean, I'm thinking you know Watergate tapes at this point. From what we know now, uh, the reporting is that it's likely that the whistleblower himself was a uh, CIA agent that uh, was working in the White House for for a certain amount of time and was told by colleagues, among other things, that uh, the White House had scrambled. They panicked to, to, to put the summary and the transcript of this call into this secret database. <clears throat> There's more reporting that they may have been doing this with with other calls ever since 2017. If that's the case, it makes you wonder uh, what else is there in these calls with foreign leaders? Did he talk about his business properties or other business interests that he has in these foreign countries? Because he does have some business overseas. Did he talk about other quid pro quo uh, in terms of political things that he wanted done that were improper? They need to get those transcripts, redact them for anything that is truly sensitive and relates to national security, and then deliver that to Congress. The um, Let's talk about uh, President Trump has tried to deflect this by throwing the Bidens into the mix. He has said, he has said without any sort of corroboration, that uh, Joe Biden and his son Hunter Biden have engaged in a, quote, quid pro quo in the Ukraine. He has not explained that. There's been no other reporting on that. That aside, do you, do you have any concerns about Hunter Biden's dealings, business dealings in the Ukraine? Do you have any concerns about Joe Biden's uh, you know, influence there? And should this be fair game? I don't have any concerns. I mean, I know Joe Biden. I know that he's an honest man. He's an honorable man. His family is honorable. Mm-hmm. And what's going on here is that Trump is using the same playbook against Joe Biden that he used against Hillary Clinton in 2016 to take an honorable public servant uh, to make false accusations, to to amplify that, and to muddy the waters of their reputation, so that you bring them down. This is a popular. Hillary's email thing. That's over. right, uh, and also all of the things about the Clinton Foundation and selling right, yes. uranium to Russia and these far-flung internet conspiracy theories. But that at the end of the day, they shave off people at the margins and depress enthusiasm for a candidate. My message to the American people would be: Don't fall for it. Mm. Don't fall for this bogus playbook. Uh, I have disagreements with Joe Biden on immigration policy, on healthcare mm-hmm. policy, a number of other issues. But I don't think for a minute that he's a dishonest man and that he did anything wrong here. And I hope that our election is going to be determined by our differences on these issues uh, and what we would do for the future of the country instead of by Donald Trump smearing a man that he believes represents a threat to him in November of 2020. How does that reshape the democratic race? Does that you know, I wrote the other day that that hurts Joe Biden because it's, you know, if, if Trump keeps talking about these charges, even though they're unsubstantiated, it's still in the atmosphere. How does that help other candidates or hurt other candidates? What is, where does, how does that reshape the race? I mean, we're so early into it. It's, of course, it's a little hard to tell. But yeah. look, what I think is that as Democrats realize that this is a wounded president, he's made his own bed, by the way. It's all of his own doing, all of his own fault. But as you have a wounded president, um, I believe that the Democratic voters are going to understand that we have a real opportunity uh, to to elect a candidate that can excite voters, uh, that will pursue a vision for the future of our country that is exciting and mm-hmm. that we can aspire to. And so that it's more than just doing the bare minimum that we can to, to defeat Donald Trump. There yeah. are many of us in this race who could defeat Donald Trump. And I feel like this is going to allow folks perhaps to... to 
uh, give a second look to a lot of candidates. Yeah, it won't in the be race. the electability argument. It won't be oh, that's it's just Biden. He's the only person who can beat it. If it's a wounded person, maybe other candidates might have a be given a second look. We absolutely. There was a a poll about two weeks ago out of Texas, for instance, that had me, uh, I believe, uh, three points ahead of Donald Trump in Texas. It's had other candidates ahead of Trump in Texas, in Arizona, and other places. So there are a lot of us who can defeat Donald Trump. What I believe I bring is that I can excite uh, a coalition of young, diverse, working people and get back Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and also go and get Florida, Arizona, Georgia, and my home state of Texas. Now, in the last debate, of course, you, you took a lot of heat for challenging Biden on health care. And it was for the way it was done. And we'll play a clip of that right here. They do not have to buy in. You just said that. You just said that two minutes ago. You just said two minutes ago that they would have to buy in. You said they would have to buy in. to buy in. If you qualify for Are you forgetting what you said two minutes ago? Are you forgetting already what you said just two minutes ago? I mean, I can't believe that you said two minutes ago that they had to buy in. And now you're saying they don't have to buy. You're forgetting that. Now, some called that an ages slap. I may be the one of the few people in America, reporters in America, who don't have a problem with that. I think this is, you know, this is spring training. And this is not anything that, uh, even if it was an ages slap, not anything that anybody hasn't said about Biden, you know, uh, publicly. Cory Booker, right after the, uh, the um, debate, says he was concerned about, quote, Joe Biden's ability to carry the ball all the way across the end line without fumbling. You're a football fan. Can, 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 can does, does, uh, Vice President Biden have some fumbleitis. Are you concerned well, as, about that as well? What I was concerned about on the debate stage was simply that we were having a disagreement about whether his plan would cover all would cover every American yeah. his health care plan, and um, he had said that it would require some people to buy into his plan, and I, I pointed that out because that's one of the reasons that it leaves people behind. He denied saying buy in or that it would apply the way that I was saying. We had a disagreement about that. So in the moment, it was not meant as, uh, you know, suggesting that that uh, he was too up in years. But I understand how some people took it that way. What it was suggesting was we have a difference in these plans. And when you require somebody to buy in, that means that you're going to leave a whole bunch of people behind. And when I get up there on the debate stage, uh, I'm a fighter. I'm a fighter for the most vulnerable people out there. And mm -hmm. I'm going to keep speaking up in this campaign for people who need speaking up for uh, and I can guarantee you that the Democratic nominee, when they go up against Trump in October of 2020 on that debate stage, if Trump hasn't been impeached by then and removed, that Trump ain't going to be nice. Uh, and, you know, I was doing my best to point out the difference in our plans. Okay, I want to go to the plans in a second. But do you think Biden has a, has, a, has a problem with fumbling? And are you concerned about his age or his ability, his, his String of uh, missteps, miscues, whatever you want to call it. I mean, at this point, I'm more concerned about uh, his stances on some of these issues. I disagreed with him on the De Detroit debate stage about immigration, for instance. Mm -hmm. uh, and now I I've disagreed with him on health care, a couple of other issues. So that's my main concern. All right. Let's let's talk about those health care differences. Uh, you are a Medicare for all person. You support Medicare for all. But you but you do see a space for private insurance, correct? There is. I do. How do you, where does that fit in? <clears throat> so the, the <clears throat> approach that I take is that I believe we should base our healthcare system off of Medicare, strengthen it for the people that are on Medicare, and then make Medicare, Medicare available to all the people who want it. 
at the same time, give people the option that if they want to hold on to some sort of strong, solid private health insurance plan, that they should be able to do that. And so I see this as a private option. Let's take Bernie's plan, for instance. Even under Bernie's plan, there would be the ability to hang on to certain types of or have certain types of private health insurance. I think in his plan, it's, um, you know, elective cosmetic surgery, for yeah. instance, but it, it would be very small. But that's a nod in the direction of some people having some other private health insurance plan. In other countries, they have this model where the default is a public plan, but you can have a, a supplemental or private health but, insurance but plan. But your, your plan sounds like the public option correct? I see it more as a private option because, for instance, um, when somebody is born uh, or when somebody loses his or her job uh, or if they don't have insurance right now, they automatically would go into, you know, without buying in or anything, they would automatically enroll into uh, this Medicare-based plan. So um, if someone was... so. Could you, um, like if you have your private insurance, you could keep it, in other words? You could, as long as, as long as it's of a certain quality. So there'd be sort of means testing to see if, or strength testing. Quality testing, quality yeah. Quality testing mm -hmm. of the insurance plan. Okay. All right, let's, um, you, um, you had said, before, when I get this out of the way, a little bit of news. Um, you will be on the debate stage in Ohio. In October, sure. In October, yes. Uh, but you just sent out a a uh, a fundraising email that I saw that it says, I I don't say this lightly, this is you talking, or at least mm -hmm. it is on your email blast that we all get annoyed with from, <laughs> from candidates like <laughs> Sorry yourself. for the long uh, yes. emails and text messages. <laughs> it's a blanket apology <laughs> right there. You say, I don't say this lightly. If I don't make the next debate stage, it will be the end of my campaign, end quote. Is that accurate? Well, it's accurate to say that, you know, we need to make these debates. Uh, and I've said all along that if you don't make these debates, it's very difficult <clears throat> to do anything in this race. And so, you know, I was saying to my supporters there uh, that, look, I'm counting on you uh, to make sure that we have the resources to be able to buy the ads online and right. do the outreach that we need. You know, I'll make a decision, a final decision. Uh, in the event that I don't make the November debate. I believe that we can. Uh, I'm confident that I can make it. I've been encouraged by some of the polls in the last two or three days. But if not, then you know, I want to be realistic too. And, and uh, it is difficult to go on after, after that. that. You had your biggest day of fundraising right after the uh, quote-unquote Biden attack. Is that accurate? Uh, well, we had our biggest day of fundraising that we'd had, I think, in that, in, in that, in that few weeks or something. Okay. Yeah, not the biggest day overall. Okay. All right. Form, you are the former uh, Secretary of Housing, and you were you toured a homeless site when you were in Oakland this week, and you saw the. I mean, you didn't have to be told about this, but you saw the updated scale of the problem here in California. We have ninety thousand homeless uh, across the state. Um, Sacramento Mayor Dale uh, Daryl Steinberg, you probably know him from your mayoral days and your your uh, your all your other various incarnations. He's the head of the state's homeless task force, and he wants a an enforceable statewide right to shelter it would require communities to have enough shelter space or other housing to accommodate however big their homeless population is. And if they do, it would require folks to go indoors or risk some sort of penalty, the homeless folks. Do you, where do you want a right to shelter? New York City does this. Is this the right way to go? Uh, I, I do think that, you, that uh, we should work toward that. Uh, I think it makes sense where you have a tremendous number of people who need uh, some sort of shelter, uh, 
What we also need, though, is you need the resources to create permanent housing for people mm -hmm. um, because this shelter is just a temporary thing. And ultimately, we need reforms to um, the way that we're investing in housing and creating housing opportunity in general. I've put out a housing plan that calls for investments to, to create 3 million more units of housing that's affordable to the middle class, the working poor, and the poor over the next 10 years. And um, I also see housing as a human right. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe that everybody should have a safe, decent, affordable place to live. And what I saw in Oakland yesterday was unlike anything that I had seen before. What uh, was different about it? I've spent time. I'd never, yeah, I had never seen that like kind of encampment. Really? Yeah, I mean, I was housing secretary. I traveled to a hundred different communities in thirty-nine states. I'd never seen that many people in one encampment with a combination of uh, essentially shacks, the kind that you would see if you go down to Mexico, for instance, that had been created through with boards and different materials, plus broken down trailers and RVs, they, you know, the homeless community created its own neighborhood, its own village. And it just goes to the enormity of, of the challenge out here. And you go, when you go inside those, uh, encampments, there are people have, uh, Jerry rigged all kinds of wiring there. It's a, it's an incredible fire hazard. And we're, you know, God forbid that something horrible is going to happen uh, there. Um, so it was the density. What else was different about it? Is there anything else you saw that was like, wow, I, I have not seen this before? Uh, I mean, I saw a lot when I was um, housing secretary. I, I just had not seen that extensive of a homeless encampment. And I had an opportunity to speak to some of the people there. Some people have lived there for a number of years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, there, It's also sad. There are children who were living there mm -hmm. growing up in those homeless encampments people who clearly have either a mental health challenge or uh, a challenge with addiction. Mm -hmm. And so it's a powerful reminder that at every level, at the local, state, and federal level, as well as in the nonprofit and private sector, we need to step up what we're doing to provide more housing to people that need it. And yeah, I keep, I've, I've said this yesterday, I challenged the New York Times and CNN that are hosting the next debate to actually ask a question about housing and homelessness. I mean, there's been nothing, no mention. That's right. And very and, little about and, poverty. And people could also. say, you know, and I, I would understand what well, people would say, look, you were the housing secretary. You <laughs> want to be able to answer, you know, even, even if I weren't on this, I, I would even say, give me a, don't let me answer it. You know, I yeah, mean, give me yeah. a pass on it, yeah. but I'm prepared to answer it. But, but it's these issues that affect so many communities. And as you know, Homelessness doesn't just affect the people that are going through it. It affects the community mm -hmm. around it um, and presents a real challenge. And so we need to address these issues that often get overlooked in the national conversation as exemplified by the debate stage. And that was an area, uh, for, for listeners not familiar with this, this is near a Home Depot you went yesterday, where the, where the city's actually closed off the street. It becomes such a, a, such a, a hazard and such a, a, a horrible situation. What do you do to create more housing in places that are high-income areas, high cost of real estate, like San Francisco and Oakland, uh, San Jose? But the, 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 it's different here. You know, we have our nimbyism like everybody else, but we also it's also very expensive to create housing and to get land, et cetera, et cetera. Do you, does your plan address that? Yeah. So um, I think there are, there are several things that we can do. Well, number one, we do need to address nimbyism that uh, prevents housing 
that's affordable to the middle class and to working poor and the poor from going into many different neighborhoods. I would incentivize communities to actually get better about their land use uh, code, zoning code, planning code, to make it easier to develop affordable housing in different community, different neighborhoods. Um, you know, I believe, of course, the neighbors should have input into what happens in a neighborhood because, you know, everybody's going to be concerned about what goes into the neighborhood. But I don't think that that a neighborhood should be able to X out for decades and decades and decades any kind of affordable housing development, which is what happens in a lot mm -hmm, of places. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, the other thing is some of the most creative approaches have been, for instance, to use public land. The VA was looking at doing this in LA, use some of the land that they already have and put affordable housing there on their mm. property. I think you know, more institutions that have land, even when it's in high, high cost areas, or especially maybe when it's in high cost areas, mm -hmm. but they have that land that they could use right. much more cheaply or for, for nothing, basically, at least the land. We need to have our uh, public hospitals, our uh, transit centers, uh, other types of public institutions really brainstorm and come up with a plan of what they might be able to offer. BART is doing this. I know. I mm -hmm. visited the Fruitvale station and they're build, building transit-oriented development. Yes. And uh, one of the folks from BART said that I think almost about half or a little bit more than half of their stations have some sort of transit-oriented development. Not all of it is housing, right. but some of its other mixed-use development. That's, that's four decades in coming, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and a lot of Plus. a lot of work to do. Yeah, yes, but yeah. that's one other thing that yeah. that institutions can do to get land, free up land, make it available, and put housing that's affordable on it. Right. Um, Want to get your take on another California issue that will will have that has national implications, and that's um, uh, the gig economy. Governor Newsom just signed a law. Uh, it, it just signed something into law that would turn. Uber and Lyft drivers and other gig workers into company employees instead of independent contractors. What do you think about that? Do you agree with that? And, and can this scale to the national level or what do you think? I hope so. Mm -hmm. I hope that it can because what's happening in our country right now is that, and especially in this gig economy, people who used to be treated as employees are now treated as independent contractors or employees that used to be full-time they're scaled down to under 30 hours. They're treated like part-time workers. They're not given so any the, kind of benefits. So health what I keep hearing from uh, Uber and Lyft drivers is that um, the companies have really clamped down on how much they're actually giving to their drivers and that it's a lot harder to make a living doing that than it used to. Mm -hmm. Not only that, I mean, they don't get anything in terms of benefits at all. They take on all the liability. Uh, and so I see this as a positive step. Uh, do you, would the company say this could add thirty percent onto cost? It would make it less flexible for the for the workers. Right now, one of the um, one of the advantages, one of the attractions to for drivers is that it's that it is a flexible hours. Would, would do you think that you would know, ruin uh, that? They have tremendous turnover right now already. I mean, these companies, Lyft and Uber, uh, one of their biggest problems is that uh, they can't keep up with uh, uh, the number of drivers that they need. I think that this would actually go a long way toward providing more stability for those drivers and allowing them to maybe earn a little bit more money as they mm -hmm. should for their efforts. And they would be willing to stick around longer. Uh, one last question. You are the only Latino candidate in the race. Um, what every year Democratic Party, the Republican Party for that matter, says we need to 
bring out more Latino voters. And you know, and then they always say that you know we need to show up in communities, and and somehow that never happens. What is the Democratic Party doing wrong, and what do they need to do better? Um, the Democratic Party can't take for granted the Latino community, just like it can't take for granted the Asian American, Native American, or the Black community. Mm-hmm. Um, with Latinos, we have uh, a very low uh, voting rate, participation rate, turnout mm-hmm. rate. That means that what it's going to take is registration efforts and turnout efforts that go beyond just the, the three or four months before an election. I mean, this is a 365-day-a-year constant effort mm-hmm. that needs to be made in those communities. It also means that we need to speak to a lot of the issues boldly. I've done that on immigration on education, on housing, on healthcare, to connect with Latinos. Uh, they have a lot of the same concerns that every other American family has. Yeah. Uh, and so, and then yeah, I, I encourage people out there to run for office from the Latino community mm-hmm. because it does make a difference. You know, as they say, representation matters. And uh, the more that they see uh, people who grew up in their neighborhoods and, and can relate Uh, to their families so directly, I think it's going to encourage people to participate more. All right. Well, Castro, thank you so much for being back back on. Good to see you. Thank you, Joe. I'd like to thank you all for listening today. I'd like to thank Secretary Castro for coming back on the podcast. I'd like to thank the King, King Kaufman, for producing today's episode. And remember, whether you're polling at 20% or a two and thinking about your life's work, it's all political. It's All Political as part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is our editor-in-chief. Our music, our theme music that we have is Cattle Call. That's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. If you like this show, subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For more great journalism like this, subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at sanfranciscochronicle.com slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Garofoli. Thanks.